0: I don't know if you guys can sense it, but there's a heaviness in the room this morning, I hope, in my heart. As I was talking with Jeff this morning, the subject matter that we're talking about is real, and it's heavy, and as we talk about where we've been in this journey through the scriptures, the truth of God, the truth of the Bible that we read, the truth of Jesus Christ and who he is that we looked at yesterday, we've got to look at a heavy subject this morning, and we need to be as the subject we're looking at is telling us truth be told, to be honest about it, the truth of sin. As we looked last night at the reality of this very important question, as we asked ourselves who Jesus is, there are two pretty profound responses to him, and we'll walk through that a little bit today. We looked at how others saw him as maybe his prophet, maybe his teacher, but Jesus says, no, there's a very incomplete view of who I am. I'm God in the flesh, and there isn't another response to me. You can reject me, or you can accept me. And Jesus offers himself as the all-satisfying option for our lives. And this morning, I want to watch, have you watch, how people responded to that message. Because there's basically two reactions. To either accept the message that Jesus offers to us, or to reject it. And my hope for you this morning is simply this. For those of you that have embraced that, that understand the gospel, that have dealt with this issue of sin that we're talking about this morning, and understood what it is and how significant it is, That you would just remember again what Jesus has done on your behalf. And that you would grow in your gratitude of the grace and forgiveness that is bestowed upon you. And for those of you that aren't there yet, I'm glad you're here. This is a safe place. I walked in your shoes for a long, long time with a hardened heart, unwilling to submit to what I saw was true. Until God finally broke me and showed me the, the sin that was within me. The things I could not solve on my own. I'm grateful for that God, and I pray that you meet him this morning, that you would do business with God, and you would allow him to do a work in your heart. Yesterday, as we finished in John chapter 6, as we turn now the pages to John chapter 7, I invite you to go there. And As Jesus proclaimed to be all the things that he said, to be the truth, to be the way, the light, and the truth, to be the bread of life, to be God in the flesh, I want you to notice in chapter 7, verse 1, one of the reactions to Jesus, some Wanted to kill him because of what he said. After these things, Jesus was walking in the Galilee. He was unwilling to walk into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Others, however, look all the way down at verse 31 of John chapter 7 believed. It says, Many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has? Will he? They believe in who he says he is. And then on in verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, certainly this is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely Christ is not going to come from the Galilee, is he? Have not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David, from Bethlehem, from the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And friends, the reality is those two choices are the same two choices that essentially we embrace today. Some look at the teachings of Jesus with scorn and say, how dare he? How dare he press into my life? How dare he talk about my sin? How dare he look into my soul and call me things of that nature and to speak truth to me, though it's hard. And others have experienced the joy that is found in Christ about being honest with what is inside of us, and seeing him as the solution to that problem. And Jesus often is said throughout the scriptures to be the Savior. But we need to ask the question, the Savior from what? Why did Jesus come? The answer to that question is because of the issue of sin. Jesus came to save us from this issue of sin. Listen to Matthew chapter 1 as the announcement of Jesus' birth is made. It says of Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, from their sins. He didn't come to conquer armies. He didn't come as a warrior. He came to fight a much bigger battle, one that no one else could fight on our behalf, a battle that is often unseen or at least unspoken of, the battle in indwelling sin in all of our lives. Turn now to John chapter 8, and I want to show you a picture of this through a woman that's caught in the very act of adultery where her sin is put on display. John chapter 8 Look at verse 2 with me. It says, early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. In placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They did this to test him, that they might... Have some charge to bring against him. So these religious leaders, the same men, the Pharisees, brought now this woman who is said to have been caught in the very act of adultery. Picture that for just a second. Again, not to be R rated, but how did they catch this woman in the very act of adultery? This, this reeks of a setup. And where is the guy that was involved in this, by the way? You can imagine in this moment the the humiliation that this woman must have been feeling. Caught in the very act, brought in the streets, brought in front of these religious leaders, all of these people, and everyone is pointing their fingers at her. In the midst of her deepest and darkest moment of shame that she thought was private has just been put on display for everyone to see. You can feel the shame and the guilt that must have been overflowing in her. And the tough part about this is that the religious leaders are correct. According to the law of Moses, in Deuteronomy, it says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now, I'm not going to lie, that's hard. But there's a value of the sanctity of marriage that God speaks to. But these people are not after justice. They are not after what the Mosaic law says. They very clearly say to Jesus in verse 6, we're bringing this woman here to test you. We want to trap you, and we want to see how you are going to respond. The problem is Jesus looks to be in a pickle. If he lets her go, they will then accuse him of not holding to God's word. That's not an option. And if he allows them to kill her, then the crowd will see him as harsh and punitive and lacking then of grace. So what is Jesus to do in this situation, this very public situation? Look at John chapter 8, verse 6. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, scholars have debated what he wrote. We have no idea what it was, no clue. Did he write the name of the guy that was maybe conveniently missing? Did he write the, maybe the sins in the sand of the accusers that were bringing this woman here? It doesn't necessarily matter what he wrote, but regardless, it took the attention off the woman, and it brought it now onto Jesus. And they further pressed him. Look at verse 7. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. And again, whatever he wrote, the response is now undeniable. But when, he, uh, sorry, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Jesus in a moment levels the playing field with all that was there, revealing to them in a sense their own sin. Any of you that would like to live in a glass house and be the first to throw stones at this woman, if you feel like you are sinless and we can examine your life as we are examining hers, feel free to cast the first stone. And Jesus says to his audience, anybody, does anybody here feel that that describes them? Sinless perfection before what this woman identifies as the Lord. And all of them, one by one, beginning with the oldest, lay down their stones, and they walk away. And Jesus shows this woman incredible grace. Does no one condemn you? He says to her. Neither do I. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Can you imagine that moment and what that meant for that woman? To face her sin, to know it was public, to know that she was caught red-handed. And Jesus tells her the truth, but she doesn't leave there condemned. Jesus both acknowledges her sin and is honest about that, and yet shows her grace at the same time. Let's talk about, for a minute, this idea of sin. What is sin? Technically, as you look through the Bible, it's the word harmartia. It's an archery term for an archer that's aiming for the bullseye, but he or her arrow flew off target. It means to miss the mark both in sins of omission, not doing the things that are right, and sins of commission, doing things that we know are wrong and yet we do them anyway. But as we learned on night one together, sin is actually far simpler than that. It is a desire to live life without God, saying, God, I don't need you. I am the master of my own destiny, and my life is best lived apart from you. I don't need you to be in my life. And that's ultimately what sin is. We saw that all the way back in the pages of Genesis chapter 3, where in Genesis 3 verse 7 it says, The eyes of both Adam and Eve were opened. They knew they were naked after they had sinned. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Right? They covered themselves because of the guilt now that entered the picture. What they were sold as a lie to Satan that you will be like God, you will know good from evil, you will be like him in every way. They got sold a bill of goods. And it says in verse 8 of chapter 3 of Genesis that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Shame now takes over. Guilt and shame are the result of life lived apart from God. Something has changed because of their sin. And like a nuclear bomb that goes off, it doesn't just affect the now. It is felt generations to come, and the reality is you and I are still reeling in the effects of that sin that they committed years later. Romans chapter 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What happened in that moment of the epicenter of sin that was committed in the garden has been far-reaching through time and through space and has affected every one of us. All who are human feel the weight of this sin. Humanity is sinful and is an active rebellion against God. And sin affects us to the very core. Every part of our being has been somehow touched and infected by this idea of sin. As we talk about this word, this is not a popular word in our culture. We don't like to talk about sin. Jeff talked about it earlier. We don't like to call people sinners. That isn't necessarily our heart. But the reality is it's there. In fact, we've almost eliminated that word from our culture. And Instead of calling things sin, we call them, you know, we made a a mistake. It's not really a sin. I didn't mean to do it. But deep down, that word doesn't fully give the meaning of of what is going on here. Think about it for a minute. You turn on the TV and you see a politician who's confessing to having multiple affairs on his wife time and time again with multiple different women. For years, this has been going on. And he gets into the public eye behind the camera and says, "I, I made a mistake. Or maybe a, a CEO of an organization who's been stealing money from people that affects uh, people's retirement and is embezzling and all of these things and he says, oh, I, I made a mistake or she says, I, I just, I did an oops or whatever. But deep down inside you think, man, I, I made some mistakes. These feel different. I've overslept an alarm and missed class. I turned in my homework assignment on the wrong day because I misread the syllabus. Those are mistakes. What we're talking about here." seems far greater than a simple mistake. And that's why we need a word like sin to describe what is going on. When we say I have sinned, it doesn't leave wiggle room to blame it on someone else. We have to take ownership for what is ours in that process. I'm not just a mistaker, I'm a sinner. I have done something intentionally. And I don't need to convince any of you that sin has entered into our world As you turn on the news, as you look at TikTok and all the social media out there, as we see mass shootings, as we see murder, as we see rape, as we see sexual violence committed against other people, none of us are so naive to think that, oh, no, we live in this like utopia world where sin isn't present at all. Sin causes suffering both to the person who is committing it and like a grenade to people around them. All of us feel the effects of that. And whether or not we're willing to honestly deal with that, sin isn't just something that is out there. Sin is something that is also in here. We are also the ones that are just as guilty. That we may not be doing the same things, sin is in our lives as well. Have you ever said something about a classmate behind their back that wasn't flattering to them? Have you ever cheated on a test? Have you ever told a a half-truth? Have you ever looked at someone who wasn't your spouse in lust? If you've done any of those things, the Bible says that's sin. Those are things that the Bible defines as sin. And again, Romans chapter 3 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whatever the sin issue may be, we are all there. We have all missed the mark of God's perfection, as the video talked about. To be holy and to be perfect as I am, we have all fallen woefully short of that standard. And as an image bearer, to to misrepresent who God is, that's exactly what we have done. In fact, we are so full of sin and so prone to sin that we can't even measure the depth of it. Now, to be fair, we got this honestly. To some degree, it's actually not our fault. Because of Adam and Eve, their sin nature has been passed on to us. A sin is not simply something that you do. It's not just an action, though it is a violation of this, a lie, a speeding, or flipping somebody off at a four-way stop sign that doesn't know how to drive. like Those are sins. Those happen. They happen to me, at least. But sin is far more pervasive than that. Sin is something that's in our DNA. Sin is something that indwells us. We are not just sinners by deed. The Bible says that we are sinners by nature as well. Listen to Romans as it describes that. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world speaking of Adam and death through sin so death spread to all men because all sinned the very dna so to speak that we got from adam and eve was a sinful nature now you may say yeah yeah but i'm i'm actually a pretty good person like mike yeah i'm not i'm not you know mother teresa but boy i'm not hitler either like i'm 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 a pretty decent person The book of Isaiah says our best deeds are like filthy rags before God. The translation of that, by the way, is menstrual rags. Our best deeds, our best effort to earn God's favor, God says those are like menstrual rags before me. Because sin impacts all of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks God. And if we say, as 1 John says, we have no sin, the Bible says we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. All of us are here. And maybe this helps you understand the struggle as to why you don't do the things that are right to do and do the wrong things instead, just like I find that experience to be true in my life. But we need to ask the the bigger question, what are the consequences of this? If we're willing to be honest and say, yeah, I can, I can get to that point where I can at least admit that there is sin in my life. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus says that people are going to perish because of the consequences of sin. In fact, as we read the scriptures, the Bible talks about death in three different ways because of the reality of sin. Number one, there is physical death. There was never death in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned, but we saw physical death come From that point on. And you and I experience death in our lives every day. But there's a more significant death. It's a spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 2. As Paul was talking to believers. He says to them. You were dead. In your trespasses and sins. You were physically alive. But you were spiritually dead. And apart from Christ. Our bodies can be physically alive. While the spirit inside of us is dead. But there's also a more permanent death that the scriptures speak of. Separation of the body and soul from God forever, meaning we will live eternal apart from God, our maker. And because God is loving, he is also just. Listen to this in Exodus chapter 34. It says that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and forgiving the iniquity and transgressions and sin. We love that part of God, right? the big teddy bear, Santa Claus God, who's loving and giving and forgiving and magnanimous and all of those things, but that's one side of the coin. It says he is also, he will by no means clear the guilty, or some translations will say, will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God says both of those things are true of me. I am loving and gracious, but I am also just, and you can't have One side of the coin without the other. Many people are shocked to think that a loving God would punish them for their sin, thinking that's not loving, that's not kind. But God does not just simply cancel out his righteousness in the face of sin. God is not a moral coward. He doesn't hide sin. He doesn't brush it under the rug. He he deals with it. And every person who insists that God would never punish them for their sins wants a God of justice when confronted with something that is undeniably evil. They just don't want it for themselves. Friends, if you've been affected by sin around you, my very first memory was of my biological father intoxicated, abusing my mom. My first memory as a two-year-old kid. In that moment, as I think about that now as a grown man, I want justice for that. And many of you have felt that, where other people's sins have affected you. You've lost loved ones. You've been harmed. You've been um, somehow affected by other people's poor choices. And in that, we all cry out for justice. God, we want you to judge. I want you to judge their sins. I just don't want you to judge mine. I want you to leave me alone. And that's our attitude so often towards sin, but we don't get them both. We can't choose which side of the coin that we get of God to ask for justice for others and yet grace for ourselves. And that's the idea of what Jesus talked about. He, in fact, raises the bar. He says if you think that you are, uh, haven't committed murder, but you're angry in your heart, you have, you've essentially committed murder of the heart. He raises the bar before us. Jesus wants us to understand the bad news so that we can understand the good news. Without understanding the pervasiveness of our sin and how significant it is, we will never appreciate what Jesus did on our behalf. Because in Romans chapter 6, it says, Though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has provided the way. A loving God who forgives sins and yet also does not leave the guilty unpunished. He took the punishment upon himself. God ultimately resolved that through the person of his son on the cross. And the reality is there is only one cure to this problem of sin. And we're going to talk about that more tonight. I want you to turn now to John chapter 9 as we see again this picture of sin and its pervasiveness. Through the eyes of a man born blind. John chapter 9, Jesus encounters a man who'd been born blind. He finds him. He basically makes clay out of his spit or spit in the clay. Places it on this man's eyes. Washes him in the pool of Siloam. And makes this man who was born blind now able to see. And like before, as this happened on the Sabbath, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were angered. And they got so angry at the man that was healed, they confront him. And when he stands up for Jesus, they actually kick him out of the synagogue. They're basically their school or their church. And in John chapter 9, verse 35, it says this about this interaction. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, You have seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that those who see me, sorry, for those who don't see me may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind, too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Again, we see these contrasting images here a man born blind from birth who now sees both physically and spiritually because Jesus healed him in both ways. And then we see the Pharisees who have never been blind physically, but remain blind spiritually, dead in their sins. The difference in the two is the blind man knows that he needs Jesus. And the Pharisees simply will not acknowledge that. And I want to leave you this morning with that question to ponder. Are you willing to acknowledge that there is sin in your life? Are you willing just to be honest about that fact? between you and the Lord, to say, God, as I evaluate my life, as I think about my day-to-day interactions, yes, there are times in my life where I have missed the mark. There are times where I have violated, God, what I know you want from me. There are things I should have done and I simply didn't do. And in that moment, in your honesty, if you're willing to get there, how are you seeking to address your own sin? What is your solution? Are you willing to admit your blindness, your condition? Like the man we studied yesterday, 38 years lame. That is a picture of us in our sin. There is nothing we can do to solve that problem on our own. Do you think that you have it all figured out? Are you like a Pharisee who, though blind, thought they could see? Meaning you think you don't need Jesus. Friends, this was the reality that I was confronted with my freshman year of college. In a fraternity, seeking to medicate all the brokenness in my life that I didn't really fully understand that was there. Pursuing things that were dishonorable to God. And a guy in love sat down with me and he shared these truths with me. And he said, Mike, this is what sin is. And this is its effects on your life. This is the life it's going to lead to you. It promises fulfillment. But like that fish that's going after that thing that it it finds so appealing, once it gets you, you think you have control, but it one day will control you. But there's a solution to that, if you'll be honest about that. And in that moment, my freshman year of college, God finally softened this hardened heart to the truths of the gospel. And I heard for the first time what Jesus had done. And we're going to talk more about that tonight. But as you consider that, and as I leave you with this, I want you to consider maybe the realities of that, to take to your group, to just be honest in your cabin time about your own sin and to reveal your need for Jesus. Because we know, according to 1 Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Friends, there is a solution, and his name is Jesus. And I would very much like to tell you about him tonight. But until then, let's pray. and Let's consider the reality of what the scriptures tell us about who we are. Father, dealing with this issue is heavy. It's not fun. But God, sometimes speaking the truth in love requires just that. As Jeff so rightly said, being honest is being loving. And hiding from someone what is true is not loving. Father, that's deception. And those are lies. So, Lord, we want to be honest about what your word says. And it says that we are indwelt in sin. That is pervasive in our bodies. That all of us uh, are dealing with that. None of us have escaped the reality of sin. So, Father, I pray just for honesty that we could admit that, and that we could see, Lord, that that is true. Not in the lives of others, but in our own lives. And that we would have the courage to draw a circle around ourselves and work on what is inside of that circle and to deal with our own hearts and our own sinful condition. And Father, by your grace, would we see that you have provided a way out, a way out through Christ that we'll discover even more so tonight. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.